The title of the message this morning is Jesus and His Critics. Jesus and His Critics. The text is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Listen to this for a moment. The following are a series of advertisements that were reportedly appearing in a daily newspaper. Monday. The Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale. Call him at his telephone number, 626-1313, after 7 p.m., and ask for Miss Donnelly, who lives with him. Cheap. Tuesday. We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The story should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale. Cheap. Telephone, 626-1313, and ask for Miss Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. Wednesday. The Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale, cheap. Telephone him at 626-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Miss Donnelly, who loves with him. Thursday. Please take notice that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no color TV set for sale. I have smashed it. Do not call 626-1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Miss Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Friday and lastly, wanted... A housekeeper. Usual housekeeping duties, good pay. Reverend A.J. Jones. Friends, sometimes mistakes are inconsequential in nature. Other times they are critical. The text before us this morning reveals that mistakes or misunderstandings, particularly as it pertains to Jesus and his identity and ministry, are not inconsequential. They are massive. They are critical. Jesus' family in our text thinks that he has lost his ever-loving mind. And the religious leaders accuse him of being in cohort with Satan. You can imagine what Jesus may have felt in his humanity as he was so misunderstood day by day by day as he took a step closer and closer and closer to the cross. Those closest to Jesus misunderstood who he was and why he came. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word together. Know that as we read, we are reading God's sufficient, God's authoritative, and God's inerrant word. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and these are the words that he pens. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons." And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has forgiveness, or never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God 
stands forever. Go ahead and take a seat. Three points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. Number one is this. Jesus was misunderstood as being crazy. Jesus was misunderstood as being crazy. And let me just go ahead and tell you on the onset here, if you endeavor to follow Jesus with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, you will be too. You will be too. You will be misunderstood as having lost your mind. You'll be labeled a fanatic, a Jesus freak, having jumped off the deep end. Jesus was misunderstood as being crazy. Let me draw your attention to verses 20 and 21, the first two verses in our text there. Again, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard about this, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, if you've ever studied through the Gospels or perhaps read through a harmony of the Gospels, a harmony of the Gospels is typically a one-volume study resource that, that seeks to take the stories of the Gospel and to put them in their chronological order. It's a very helpful resource. If you don't have one, I would encourage you to, to purchase one. It's a good resource to have on your shelf, uh, your growing Christian library. These are available online. You can, re- uh, you can access them for free. But if you studied or you surveyed Matthew and Luke's gospel, just those two, it makes it clear that, that some time has elapsed between verse 19, that's where we ended last week, and verse 20, where we pick back up this morning. As a matter of fact, sandwiched in between verse 19 and verse 20, where we pick back up this morning, are the events of Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and all the events of Luke 7, verse 20, through the beginning of verse 8. This would include the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus healing the centurion's servant, Jesus raising the widow's son, the forgiveness of the sinful woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, and then anointed his feet with costly oil. All these take place right there between Mark chapter 3, verse 19, and verse 20. And so this gives a little context when Mark tells us in verse 20 that Jesus went home. Well, a lot had taken place in between those two verses there. So Jesus goes home now. He went home. He returned home from the mountain where he called his disciples to himself. Remember, he spent a whole evening there praying before he selected his disciples. He called his disciples to himself. All the events of Matthew 5 through 7, Luke 7 uh, through chapter 8. And Jesus now has returned home. It's probable that home means Capernaum. More specifically, home probably means Peter's house. That was kind of home base, mission control, uh, if, you, if you will, for a lot of Jesus' ministry as he crisscrossed through Galilee, the region of Galilee. And as you can imagine, as we have seen often through our study to this point, it did not take long for word to get out that Jesus had arrived back in town. And so what happens? Look at your Bible. The crowds again gather. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is met with a sea of people. Remember the last time that Jesus was at Peter's house, the crowd was so densely packed that Peter, or Mark writes rather, that there wasn't even room at the door. This time the crowd again is so large that Jesus and his disciples don't even have time to eat. Jesus is so busy dealing with the needs of the people, ministering to the needs of his people along with his disciples, that he doesn't even have time to sit and take a meal. As we've noted before, the crowds are oftentimes an obstacle rather than an asset to Jesus' ministry. But this time, more than the crowds, it is a different group. It's a different group of individuals that poses a threat to Jesus' mission. Look at verse 21, there in your Bible. Mark writes, When his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, I realize that sitting across here using faithful translations, there's probably a variant in a word in in our Bibles here, and that variant is in the word family. The ESV, which is what I teach and preach from, the English Standard Version, uses the word his family. When his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. But the original language reads much more vague and simply. It just says the ones beside him. When the ones beside him heard it, And I think Mark intentionally leaves these individuals, whoever they may be, a bit ambiguous. 
Having said that, the, the phrase, the ones beside him, that, that was a very common Semitic idiom that was used for family, to describe family. And so the way the ESV, if that's what you've got sitting on your lap there, translates it, that's a faithful translation. It's a very common way to refer to a person's family or a person's close friends, a person's relatives. You would say the ones beside them. It's exactly what we see here in our text. Matter of fact, if you read John's gospel, John chapter 2, verse 12, John tells us that Mary and Jesus' brothers visited Jesus and his disciples in Capernaum early in his ministry. And we'll see Jesus' mother and his brothers show up in verse 31 here in our text. And so that's probably exactly who Mark has in view here. Probably Jesus' mother along with his brothers. It could, have, it could have included others. Whoever the ones beside him are, there is an obvious disconnect between Jesus' agenda for his ministry and their agenda for him. That's where the disconnect is. Between Jesus' agenda for his ministry and those who were beside him. When friends, family, or both heard that the crowds had gathered again around Jesus and that Jesus' tireless ministry activity prevented him from even caring for some of the basic needs of life, the basic necessities of life, they went to put a stop to it. They went to put a stop to it. Look at your Bible there. Mark writes that they went out to seize him. To seize him. The word seize there, it's the Greek word krateo. It means to take into custody, to arrest, or to take charge of. That's what Jesus' family is coming to do. Probably coming out of Nazareth uh, to Capernaum to, to take charge of Jesus, to put a stop to his ministry. Can you imagine just for a moment, folks, what would have happened, what would have been the case if Jesus' family were successfully able to stop him? We wouldn't be sitting here this morning. Thank God that Jesus' family was not able to persuade him from his mission. Jesus was laser-focused on his mission. From day one, from from his baptism, every step forward in his personal ministry, Jesus' face was fixed like flint on the cross. But here are Jesus' family coming in to take charge of the situation, to take him into custody. As a matter of fact, the same word there, krateo, is used oftentimes in Mark's gospel to describe the many attempts to arrest Jesus. And what's the rationale of Jesus' family here? Well, your Bible says that those closest to Jesus, those around him, think that he's out of his mind. They, they think that Jesus is way in over his head here. I mean, Jesus' family, they, they would have undoubtedly been aware of his teaching His authoritative teaching, they would have been aware of his healings, they would have been aware of Jesus' authority over the the demonic world, his ability to cast out demons. Matter of fact, if you can remember back to chapter 1, Mark tells us early in chapter 1 that Jesus' fame had spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. You can can bet that Jesus' family would have been recipient of that news. They were very aware of what was going on with Jesus. Jesus' family would have been well aware that he was inundated by expectant crowds everywhere that he went. They would have known that he ruffled the the feathers and raised the brows of the religious leaders. And as a result, that he stood under their intense scrutiny. I think Jesus' family and friends think that he's writing checks that he can't cash. And so they have come to rescue him probably to take him back to Nazareth. And we also need to keep in mind here that that the culture that Jesus lived in, in Jesus' day and age, there was an intense culture of of shame and honor. It's possible that Jesus' family went to seize him to keep him from bringing shame upon the family name. I mean, Jesus, you're out here and people think you've lost your mind and we can't help but to agree a little bit. And so to protect the family name, we need to get you undercover. Let's take you back to Nazareth. Let's, let's, let's give you some time to cool off a little bit. From a human perspective, it appears as if Jesus' family and friends have well-meaning intentions. However, what they have done is they have grossly misread the evidence. They have misunderstood who Jesus 
was and why he came. Matter of fact, uh, later on in the Gospels, John tells us that, that it wasn't until much later that Jesus' brothers even believed him. Jesus wasn't too busy, nor was he out of his mind. He was simply carrying out his Father's will. You know, friends, even, even well-intentioned individuals can encourage us to depart from God's will. That's why you need to know your Bible. That's why you need to be very familiar with God's word. If you want to know God's will for your life, become well acquainted with God's word. Because God's word clearly, clearly explains God's will for your life. At least in the overarching broad sense and in broad terms. And even well-intentioned individuals thinking that they are doing what is best for you can come along and encourage you to depart from God's will even unintentionally. History reveals that God's servants are usually misjudged by their contemporaries and oftentimes even misunderstood by their own families. I mean, Paul was called mad. If you can remember in Acts chapter 26, Festus, who succeeded Felix as governor um, and and later uh, sent Paul to stand trial under Nero, he told Paul that he was out of his mind. He He said, Paul, all this great learning is driving you out of your mind. How did Paul reply? He said, I'm not out of of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. How do you want to know that what you're doing is true and rational? Be well acquainted with God's word. And then when people come and say, you're mad, you've lost your mind, you've jumped off the deep end, you'll already know that you've gotten your clear marching orders. Other fellows like Martin Luther and John Bunyan and John Wesley and William Borden, all these men, and that's just a Uh, a scratching of the surface here were all thought of as having lost their minds as a result for their zeal for Christ. William Borden, this name may or may not be a familiar name to you. I would encourage you to Google William Borden, B-O-R-D-E-N, not D-O-N. William Borden, fascinating, fascinating young man uh, whose heart and zeal and tenacity for Christ uh, is so encouraging. Uh, incredibly encouraging. Uh, Borden was converted as a young man under the preaching of R.A. Torrey. Name ring a bell? Okay, well, Torrey was preaching at the Chicago Avenue Church, which today has become Moody Church. And there's Borden sitting as a young man, listening to the word being preached, the authoritative, sufficient, inerrant word of God being preached by R.A. Torrey, and he's converted as a young man. But Borden was an heir to an absolute massive family fortune. He graduated high school in Chicago in 1904 at the age of 16. And as a graduation gift, Borden's parents gave him a chaperone trip around the world. If you're wondering what to ask for, young people, for your graduation gift, a chaperone trip around the world would be a good bucket list thing to ask for. May or may not happen. Have right expectations. But what an opportunity here. Parents sent him on a, on a trip around the world. He traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. And as, as, he, as he traveled, he felt this growing burden for the world's hurting people. Somewhere along his journey, young Borden wrote a letter home to his parents. And there he explained to them in that letter that he wanted to become a missionary. Upon hearing this news, one of Borden's friends expressed disbelief that he was, quote, throwing himself away as a missionary. And in response to this, Borden allegedly, this Bible's never been found, but allegedly wrote two words in the back of his Bible. Those two words were no reserves. No reserves. When when Borden's friends heard that he wanted to be a missionary and accused him of jumping off the deep end, of throwing his life away because he was the heir of a massive family inheritance, how did Borden reply? No reserves. No reserves. A year later, in 1905, Borden entered Yale University as a freshman. All of his classmates, uh, though they knew that he was extremely wealthy, noticed that he was also extremely different. They saw settled purpose in his life and devotion to Christ. During his college years, Borden made an entry um, in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing. This This was his entry. 
This would be something for us to prayerly consider for our own lives. That, that entry simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Oh, if that characterized our lives. During his college career, Borden began to meet together with another student in the morning before breakfast. They began to read the scriptures and pray together. It didn't take long before this little group of two became a group of three and a group of four and a group of five and a group of six. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly in the morning before breakfast for Bible study and prayer. And by the time Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in groups like this. Talk about influence. You know, I, I mentioned something several weeks back that may have caught some of your listening ears a bit off guard. I said this, if you light yourself on fire, people will come and watch you burn. Here's exactly what I mean by that. If, if you live full throttle, full bore, to the hilt, which should, as a matter of fact, Jim Elliott, the, the missionary Jim Elliott said, live to the hilt. Everybody know what a hilt is? It's that little round plate, the base of a sword right there between the handle. That's the hilt, Okay. Jim Elliott said, live to the hilt everything you believe, every situation and circumstance you believe to be the will of God. Go all the way. Be all in. Shove all the chips forward. That's what, that's what Borden means here when he says, say no to Jesus and yes to self every time. Influence. Light yourself on fire, people. Light yourself on fire for Christ with your zeal for him, and people will gather around as they watch you glow. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. The desire to be a missionary burned within him. It's been reported that in his Bible, Borden wrote two more words. After his father told him that he would never hold a position in the family business, those two words were no retreats. No retreats. No reserves, he wrote early on. No retreats. In other words, I'm burning bridges, no turning back, no turning back. I'm not putting my hand to the plow and then turning back. No retreats. Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New York, or New Jersey, rather. And when he finished his studies, he sailed to China. Uh, he had a, a passion, a burning passion in his heart to reach Muslims. And so he stopped first in Egypt so that he could study Arabic. But unfortunately, and maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, in God's sovereign wisdom, rather, while he was there studying Arabic, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Borden gave up not only his wealth, but he gave up his life, wanting to go reach the unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Let me ask you this question first. Did Borden waste his life? No. No. Now that, that's, that's a picture of a life well lived, not a picture of a life wasted. Borden had previously written no reserves. He had written no retreats. And now in his Bible, he wrote the final two words, no regrets. No regrets. Friends, if we endeavor, as I pray that we do, to live lives that are characterized by the words no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets, we will, just like Jesus, be misunderstood. You can count on it. You can count on it. We, we don't need to go invite misunderstanding. You'll be misunderstood as it is. It's always true that a man or a woman who is on fire for God seems deranged to his or her contemporaries. The more like Christ we, that we become, the more that we'll experience the sorrow of being misunderstood by relatives and friends. If we set out to make a fortune... If we set out to make a name for ourselves, if we set out with grand business dreams and desires, the world will cheer us. But if we're fanatics for Jesus, the world will jeer us. Why is this? Well, Paul reminds us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or their foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. J.C. Ryle encourages us, and this is such encouragement to my soul. I hope it is to yours as well. He says, let it not shake our faith. If we have to drink the same cup as our Lord, speaking about being misunderstood, hard as it may be to be misunderstood by our friends and our family, we must remember that this is not a new thing. This is not something new. 
It's happening to us. It was Jesus who, who said, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus knows the bitterness of your trials. Jesus knows when you're misunderstood. Jesus knows when you're jeered by the culture. Jesus knows the, the heartache in our humanness of being labeled as a fanatic. But let that not discourage you. You're a sojourner. You're an alien. You're just passing through. This world is not your home. Let us bear patiently with the unreasonableness of those who would set themselves up against us. Let us pray for them. Pray that their blindness and, and pray that their hearts, their hard hearts would be softened and melted like wax. Who knows, friends? Those who oppose you now just might stand with you later. Pray for them. Pray for them. Jesus was misunderstood as being crazy. And if you follow him, so will you. Number two, Jesus was maligned as being demon-possessed. I realize that we have some young people in here, and there are some letters in there that are silent. Let me spell it for you, young people. M-A-L-I-G-N-E-D, maligned. Jesus was maligned, treated harshly, as being demon-possessed. Let me draw your attention to verses 22 through 30. That's where we are here. The scribes didn't think that Jesus was insane. They accused him of working with Satan. Jesus' family said, you've lost your mind. The scribes, though, the, the religious leaders of the day, they accused him of being in cohorts with Satan. And so what does Jesus do here? He, he refutes the erroneous claim, and then he pronounces strict divine judgment on those who made such claims. Look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now, the scribes here, they have traveled down, probably down from Jerusalem to Capernaum, in order to confront Jesus. The scribes, they, they, they are religious leaders. They, they sit in, in authority in the temple, and their temple authority signifies that what they are getting ready to communicate is the official position of the religious establishment's opposition toward Jesus. What they're saying here in verse 22 is the official position of the religious establishment. They don't come asking questions like they have in the past. I mean, when Jesus healed the paralytic, it was the scribes and the Pharisees who asked the question, why does this man speak like this? When Jesus was seen mingling with tax collectors and sinners, they, they asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and his disciples picked up grain from the fields on the Sabbath, they were asked, why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? But they aren't asking questions here anymore, friends. The scribes are not coming asking questions. They're coming making statements. And notice, the scribes don't deny Jesus' power to perform miracles. They don't deny it at all. They have been clear witnesses to his power. Neither do they accuse him of being an imposter. They recognize his power to perform miracles. What they do, though, is they attribute Jesus' source of power to Beelzebul rather than God. Now, a whole lot packed in these few verses here. And I want to I say enough so that it is helpful and, and that you can understand it without it being burdensome uh, to us here this morning. But the exact meaning of Beelzebul is a bit different, or a bit difficult rather, to pin down. Uh, Beel comes from the pagan god Baal, uh, and Beelzebul uh, it was changed at different times in, in Jewish uh, history. At times they would change a, a letter uh, in, in that word there, and thus it would change the meaning of the word. Uh, Basically, at the end of the day, to call Jesus Beelzebul means that Jesus is working in cohort with, that he is linked arms with, that he is under the influence of Satan. They're, they're accusing him of being demon-possessed and working by the power of Satan. 
maybe a good translation here of Beelzebul would, would be this, master of the house or lord of the dwelling place. Lord of the dwelling place, speaking about Satan. The scribes are charging Jesus with being possessed by a demon and thus driving out demons through a power alliance with Satan, who is the prince or the ruler of demons. That's what's going on here in verse 22. That's what they're accusing him of. They're saying, all your power, we can see it, we can't deny it, it's clear, but it's not a power manifest from God, it's a power manifest from Satan. You are working with Satan. Look at verse 23. And he called to them. Let me stop right there. I wonder what the scribes must have been thinking as Jesus locked eyes with them and called to them. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? They were well aware of the man who was standing before them. Now, interesting to note, this is the first time that Jesus speaks in or employs parables in Mark's gospel. The English word parable uh, comes from the Greek word parabole. Uh, It's a compound word, para, uh, means to come alongside paraclete. We speak about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Para means to come alongside. Balo means to, to throw or to cast. And so a parable is a story that comes alongside or is cast alongside a teaching that helps illustrate its meaning. Jesus used this method of teaching often. As a matter of fact, we'll see him employ it very heavily in chapter 4. We'll see the parable of the sower. We'll see the parable of the mustard seed. And then it continues on throughout Mark's gospel. This is the first time that Jesus teaches using parable, though, here in Mark's gospel. The point of a parable is to encourage the listener so deeply that he or she is compelled to make a clear decision, to draw a line in the sand and make a clear decision regarding God's truth in their lives. And so in in that case, a parable is meant to arrest attention or to arouse interest. Basically, it's it's meant to grab you by the shirt and shake you. What a parable is meant to do. They serve like the rest of God's word as a mirror that reflect back to us our own heart. And the parables that Jesus used are meant to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. To teach a story, yes, or to teach a deeper theological truth, yes, but also to reveal our own fallen hearts. They're meant to bring us face to face with who God is, how wicked our hearts are, how desperately we need him, and how humble and submissive we are to come to him. It's the purpose behind Jesus' parables. And so look at the parables that he uses here. Starting in verse 24, Jesus has called the scribes to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And so here's Jesus' logic. Okay, Jesus, Jesus is a master at using logic here. Here's Jesus' logic. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If, if I'm working in cohort with Satan, then it's Satan against Satan. That's kingdom against kingdom. If a kingdom rises up against the kingdom, that kingdom cannot stand. It will tear itself to shreds. The example here is that of civil war. I mean, if that is maintained, a, a country, a nation will, will uh, tear itself apart. A divided kingdom cannot stand. That's logic number one from verse 24. Or 24. Look at verse 25. Jesus says a divided house cannot stand. And if a, if a house is divided against itself, how will the house be able to stand? Well, uh, the answer is it can't. The illustration here is that of domestic violence. Uh, when, when, when you have two individuals, part of the same family, that are just tearing at each other, the, the, the house or the family unit can't stand. And then Jesus' third part of logic comes to us in verse 26. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Here's the illustration here. I was trying to think, okay, what does this look like? And, and maybe this is, uh, this may or may not be a good illustration. I, I don't know. But ha- have you ever seen a video of a poisonous snake that's attacking itself? You never seen, uh, uh, I'll just say Google it. Uh, don't. 
There's probably more edifying things to watch. Uh, but, but it's a pretty in, incredible sight. You know, to, to, to see the poisonous snake just dig into its own self with its fangs, injecting its own self with its venom, killing itself eventually. That's the picture there of a divided person cannot stand. And so what Jesus does here is he, he tells another story, uh, starting in verse 27 here to, to, to help tie up any loose ends. A divided kingdom can't stand, a divided house cannot stand, and a divided person cannot stand. Satan cannot stand against himself. And so Jesus tells this strong man parable, beginning in verse 27. Look at your Bible there. Jesus says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, it's interesting, potentially a play on words here, probably a play on words. The scribes accused Jesus of being in cohort with Satan. And they called him Beelzebul, which means master of the house or lord of the dwelling place. And so keep that in mind as you transpose that to verse 27 here. Satan is the strong man in this parable. The house is Satan's dominion. Paul was referring to Satan when he said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Talking about Satan there. Satan's goods are the people with whom he holds sway. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the master of the house. Picking up on this Beelzebul language here. Jesus is the master of the house. The strong man resides in the house. The house is his dominion. His goods are those whom he exercises influence and sway over. But Jesus... Jesus is the master of the house. Jesus is the one by his own power and authority who will bind the strong man and plunder his house. Jesus is plundering Satan's house today. Every time someone comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan's house is plundered. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil John tells us, 1 John 3.8. And to set captives free, John 8.36. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. And though Satan exercises a measure of control in this world, he's like a leashed dog. He has range, but he does not have free range. He has power, but he does not have omnipotence. I mean, Paul reminds us in a glorious passage, Colossians chapter 2. That Jesus has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he has put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus, the master of the house, will plunder, will bind the strong man and plunder his belongings. What a picture of the gospel. What a picture of the saving nature of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is coming a day, friends, when Jesus Christ will return and bind Satan forever. He'll bind him first for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, Revelation 20. And then he will bind him forever. I love that picture. Such glorious imagery that Jesus employs here in the text. Let's talk about this unpardonable sin here. Let's talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Perhaps everyone has heard of, knows of, the unpardonable sin. Even non-believers are familiar with this doctrine. Everyone is aware of, of, of this sin which there is no forgiveness for. But before I say too much about that, I want us to take a few seconds here and just park in the parking space 
of the first part of verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Write this down. It is possible to be forgiven all your sins. And that is a glorious, glorious truth and reality and message. Jesus tells us that it is possible to be forgiven all your sins. All the sins of man can be forgiven. Let not these first words fall lightly on our ears. That we pass over them and see no particular beauty in them. I mean, think about this here. All sins will be forgiven means sins of youth and sins of age. It means sins of the hand, sins of the head, sins of the heart, sins of the tongue, sins of the imagination, sins of the motivation, all sins against God's commandments, all the sins of persecutors like Paul, all the sins of idolaters like Manasseh who sacrificed his children on a pagan altar, all the sins of adulterers like, like David and murderers like David and Paul. Paul, all the sins of drunkenness like Noah, all the sins of the open enemies of Christ like, the, like the, the one who hung on the cross next to him, all the sins of backpedalers like, like Peter who denied Christ, all of these can be forgiven. Praise God. Praise God. The blood of Christ can cleanse them all. The righteousness of Christ can cover them and hide them from God's eyes. For those who have come to Christ by faith have been plunged beneath the flood. Though their sins, uh, Isaiah tells us, though their sins have been as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. Brothers and sisters, friends, it is possible to be forgiven all your sins. If you're here this morning and you are lost in your sins and trespasses, if you've never come to faith in Christ, whatever baggage you drug in here this morning can be forgiven and must be. Must be. Forgiveness is not the same thing as Jesus conveniently sweeping your sin under the rug. That's not what he's saying when he says all sins can be forgiven. All sins can be forgiven, but all sins must be paid for. That's why we glory in a crucified Christ. Jesus, the faultless, guiltless Son of God, died in place of everyone who comes to him in humble faith and repentance. Have you? Have you? It's possible to be forgiven all your sins. Here's the corresponding truth here. It's possible for a man's soul or for a woman's soul to be lost forever in hell. Verses 29 and 30, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The term blasphemy here can be defined as defiant irreverence. Defiant irreverence. A blasphemy against the Holy Spirit has to do with accusing Jesus Christ of being demon-possessed instead of spirit-filled. And for that reason, because the question is oftentimes asked, can this sin be repeated today? And I would answer that question and say no. This particular sin spoken of here in verses 29 and 30 cannot be repeated today. It cannot be duplicated today. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were around Jesus, were in a very unique moment in history. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the Holy Spirit stirring around them. They they knew truth. They had the Son of God himself standing right in front of them. They saw with their own eyes the miracles that he did never before in the history of the world. Has so much divine light been been granted to men than when Jesus stood among men? I mean, we have incredible light today. We have the revealed word of God in all of its completion. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. You have all the light you need here to be saved. And you have all the light you need here to be condemned. But uniquely in Jesus' day, he stood with men and stood with women. If anyone should have recognized Jesus for who it was, it was the religious leaders. It was the scribes and the Pharisees, yet they chose defiance. They purposely and willfully attributed the work of the Spirit 
to the devil. And so Jesus declared their willful blindness to be unpardonable. They were rejecting God's grace here. They were trampling God's word. They had set their course, and God was going to let them sail into destruction unhindered. And so blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this sense, I would submit to you, cannot be duplicated today. But there is an unpardonable sin today, and that is the state of continued disbelief. If you know the gospel and you continually reject it and spurn it and spite it and trample it under feet, there is a day when your number will be called and you will breathe life's final breath. And if you breathe that final breath, having rejected the grace of Christ, the free offer of the gospel, there is no forgiveness. Let's settle in for just a moment here. The unpardonable sin today is simply the ongoing, continual rejection of Christ. It's to resist conviction. Uh, it, is, it is a willful, hard-hearted attitude. It's not a sin that's committed accidentally. Rather, it's an indifference to sin. It's a cynical rejection of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ savingly, fly to him. Throw yourself on him with reckless abandonment. Cast yourself upon his matchless mercy and grace because it is possible for a man or a woman's soul to be lost forever. I mean, we, we find this truth asserted over and over again through the scriptures. Figures of all kinds are multiplied and language of every sort is employed to make it plain and evident and unmistakable. But yet there are teachers who have risen up today who, who want to do away with an eternal condemnation, eternal punishment. They try to explain it away. But to do so, they have to fashion a God in their own liking because the God of the Bible declares that it's true. Popular teaching is that God loves and God's love makes it impossible for there to be a reality of an everlasting hell. Friends, your Bible holds both of those truths to be true at the same time. God does love. And I would submit to you, because God loves, hell exists. Because the object of God's first affection is himself. And all sin is willful rejection of him. Number three, we'll land the plane quickly here. Jesus was unmistakable about who his family really is. This really is a relatively short point here. Look at verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came to him. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They're, they're calling for you, Jesus. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. Verses 31 through 35 are likely a continuation of verses 20 and 21. Mark, on a number of occasions, communicated with this sandwich style of writing. And that's exactly what you see taking place here. We have verses 20 and 21, and then sandwiched right in between is this, uh, is this talk of, of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and then the, the second sandwich piece there, the second piece of bread, is Jesus unmistakably communicating who his family is. I mean, here's, here's Jesus sitting around a table, mom and brothers who have come up, presumably from Nazareth, to, to save Jesus because they think he's lost his mind. They're out there knocking on the door, and somebody says, hey, Jesus, you know, word kind of travels through the crowd. And it's like, hey, Jesus, you know, Joe over there said, mom and brothers are out there waiting. And Jesus takes this moment and turns it into a teachable moment which Jesus oftentimes did. And what he does is he looks around the table and he says, who, who are my, my mother and my brother and my sisters? Let me tell you who they are. It is those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is not disparaging blood 
uh, flesh and blood biological family here. But he is, on the other hand, broadening the reference beyond those who are present by stating that whoever does God's will is really the member of his family. I mean, Jesus, what he's doing here is he's drawing the line between that which is biological and that which is spiritual. I mean, there's a real sense in which our spiritual family, if you're here this morning and you know Christ being spiritually united to Christ, being spiritually united or bound to one another, that bond is actually greater than a flesh and blood bond because it endures longer. It endures for all eternity. And so let me ask you this question this morning. Are you a part of the family? Are you a part of the family? Are you just reclining around the table or are you one who is doing the will of his Father who is in heaven? In other words, are you bearing the fruit of genuine faith and repentance? Do you know Christ savingly? If so, you're a part of his family, a part of his spiritual family. I was thinking about this this week. This will be the last thing that I'll say. That this, this reality radically, 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 radically influences how we treat each other in here. The fact that we are family, those of us who know Christ savingly are family, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, united to, to Jesus, and thus united to one, that should radically influence the way that we treat each other in the household of God, that we wouldn't backbite, that we wouldn't slander, that we wouldn't be arrogant, that we wouldn't try to one-up each other, but that we would love each other. We'd practice all the, the 30 plus one another's in the New Testament as we grow in grace with each other together. Do you know Christ in this way? Are you a part of his family? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it is uh, so pointed. Thank you that it communicates to us everything that we need for life and faith and godliness this side of eternity. Father, I pray if there is any person here this morning who does not know uh, Jesus Christ savingly, they would repent of their sin. They would turn their back on their sin, their own vain striving and they would cast themselves upon Jesus' matchless mercy and grace and receive forgiveness full and free. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.